We are in the fourth and final division of Luke, and this is Jesus in Jerusalem, the innocent one slain and raised in Jerusalem, chapters 20, verse 1 through 24, verse 53. This is the final division. Remember, we had that first division, which was just the announcement and birth and early childhood of Jesus and John. Then we entered the first major division of Luke's true narrative. That first division is more like a a prologue. And that it was Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's when we discovered the kind of person he was. So we were introduced to Jesus as basically the one, the Messiah. The not failed Messiah, like Moses and David and Elijah. The one that everyone's been looking towards. The one who is baptized and the one who passes the initiation test in the wilderness and the one who begins to speak and act and do miracles and treat people unlike anyone else has and begins to give a deeper, more authentic, original understanding of the Mosaic law and the way we're supposed to interpret it. Then, in the next section, the next division... He sets his face towards Jerusalem and begins to make the journey to his death. Multiple times it repeats, he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And his disciples keep misunderstanding that and keep thinking that, you don't get it, Jesus. That's not what God wants. And then he finally enters in Jerusalem and a triumphal entry. He enters into the temple and he overturns the tables, declares the temple to be his, his father's house, my house and this begins the idea of tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days which is his body and so now in this division the final division he is in Jerusalem and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to become friends for the first time ever because they have a common enemy Jesus and they're going to amp up the interrogation and the evidence for why they should kill him and then they're going to kill him And then he's going to do the unthinkable. He's going to not just be raised from the dead, which has been seen through Elijah and Elisha, but he's going to raise himself from the dead and bring the salvation of all humanity. And so this is not only, this is a bittersweet moment in the story. The bitterness is the horrific betrayal of his own people, his own creation against him and their violent crucifixion. And when we get into crucifixion, most scholars, most doctors considered it the most horrific thing that humans have ever invented on how to kill people. And then, but at the same time, there's this sweetness because his death is the salvation and the redemption of the world. But then it leads to this most ultimate vindication and victory of his resurrection. So this is the section that we're in. In his final division, Jesus' ministry comes to his culmination as he moves into the temple and faces the power of the priesthood head-on. The question centers on who has legitimate authority to rule over Yahweh's people, to interpret scripture, and to determine appropriate behavior. Now, we've already seen this in Jesus' ministry. There's already been this battle between the Pharisees and Jesus of who has the authority to interpret scripture and to determine how one should behave as a true follower of Yahweh. But now we're entering into the fact of who truly has the authority to rule. He has never really implemented his rule. 
and he's not going to fully implement his rule in the first coming, but his entry into Jerusalem establishes his kingship, and his ability to go head-to-head with the Pharisees and the Sadducees undefeated establishes power over the people, and his ability to die and conquer the grave, death and sin and the devil and become, come back to life is going to demonstrate his ultimate sovereign God power over creation. And so the question is, who has the right to rule? Jesus, as Yahweh's representative, appointed by God, this is my son and whom I well please, listen and obey to everything he says, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees who self-appointed themselves? And that becomes the question. Thus, Jesus' first order of business was to reclaim the temple for his legitimate use of pure worship to Yahweh and to reveal Yahweh to the people concerning his purpose for Israel as fulfilled in Jesus when he becomes the true temple through his death and resurrection. It was time for all revelation and worship to be centralized in the Son of God as the true temple, which means the physical temple and its leadership had to be brought to an end and transferred to Jesus, the Messianic King. Now this is important because David, who is the beginning of this Davidic line, obviously the father, and is in David in first, second, second Samuel chapter 7, that God makes the Davidic covenant with him. It is at this point... See, remember in the beginning, God promised Jacob in Genesis 49 that it will be through your son, Judah, that this great king will come one day. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and says it's going to be through your line, your specific family, of all the many families of Judah, that this messianic king will come one day. And your line will be the royal line. Your line will be the redemption of humanity. Is at that moment that David representing kingship and making Jerusalem the center of all political power by putting his throne there, then brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, making Jerusalem the center of all religious power. Is at this moment that David is going to write the Psalm 110, where God comes and says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool and you will be in the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to talk about that in way more depth when we get to the scene with Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But at that moment, David envisions a day that this messianic son of his will be not only king, but also priest, which is forbidden by the Mosaic law. Yet it is inspired and revealed by Yahweh through David in the Psalms. And then it is at this moment that the prophets start developing this more. Psalm 110 becomes the basis for this messianic thing. The messianic idea, the seed was already there in Genesis 49 and in Numbers chapter 23. But it is that when David writes Psalm 110, that's when the seed begins to break through the dirt, so to speak, the prophecies of the Messiah. And then it is with the prophets that it begins to flower and blossom as they develop it. And it is at this point that we get to Isaiah that we see this idea in 53 of a suffering servant, a priest-like figure. But Isaiah also envisions a king, but he also envisions a prophet. But none of these are linked together until we get to Zechariah, when he envisions the line of Zerubbabel king and the line of the priest Joshua coming together and merging into one lampstand and talks about him being the branch of David, 
but also wearing the priesthood. It is at this moment that this idea of king and priest married together starts with David bringing these two things together in Jerusalem. And then the temple gets built and becomes the center of political and religious power and a temple state-like government that will establish itself. And when Jesus comes into Jerusalem at this moment, he will transfer all that to himself. So all this merges together and stays there in a pathetic man attempt to make it thrive. And Jesus enters into the temple after his triumphal entry and basically declares the temple to be his declares the kingship to be his and begins to marry this idea of king and priest together in himself. And it is at this moment that he starts taking all the threads of the prophecy, suffering lamb, ruling lion, priesthood, kingship, temple, tabernacle, sacrificial system, all these things. And he's going to start pulling them together and tying them around his waist and making them himself. He is the fulfillment. Do we know if there's anybody else who stood up and claimed that was them? Yes. When we went through the intertestamental period, and I know I did 400 years in like a couple of days, so um, or a week. So, but basically, yes, there were um, there was Jonathan and the Hasmonean families. Jonathan and Simon, they all basically claimed to be the priest and high king, but not in a prophetic sense. They basically just claimed. They just said, "I'm king and I'm priest." And then they just ruled. Like, they no, and they just ruled like every other corrupt leader has ever ruled. But they didn't own those titles of lamb and lion and sacrificial system and temple and tabernacle and all those things. Nobody really has pulled that all together. There's another guy that will come after Jesus by the name of Simon Bar Karchva, and he'll try to do the same thing. But even post Jesus, with all the epistles being written, he still doesn't pull all that stuff into himself. He just basically takes the crown and claims to be a priest and says, I am the Messiah, and then tries to kill Romans. And so they're still just in this very narrow sliver. I'm going to control religious and political power so that I can have power, so I can kill Romans and establish my own throne. But not in this kind of multi-thread fulfillment, redemption, and a very complex beyond just killing Romans. No, nobody has ever claimed that. Nobody has ever done that. And this is also probably why the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, definitely don't get it. But the disciples, are, they're like, what? <laughs> they definitely don't get it. The hostility rises when Jerusalem leadership, whose authority is tied to the temple, refuses to embrace Jesus' understanding of the function of the temple though they will fail miserably to undermine Jesus' authority and understanding of Yahweh and his will. Jesus will allow them to kill him in order to fulfill the purpose of Yahweh and rebuild the temple. They don't get that this is all an external thing to point to him, to be transferred to him. And they've established a lot of power in themselves maintaining these external systems. And when Jesus comes to do away with the external systems, to replace it with the fulfillment of him, a very real organic being, to establish it and transfer it to his community followers, a very organic community, they feel threatened by that. Power is never meant to be in the hands of the people. Power is always meant to be in the hands of the limited few, according to the way that they think. And they see this. 
And this reveals who they really are. And you have to understand something. We've talked about this a few times, but no one sees the Pharisees as the enemy. No one sees the Pharisees as the enemy. The Pharisees are the pastors. They're the youth pastors, so to speak. The way, I mean, they're not youth pastors, but the way we view those things. They're the people that you look to. They're the ones that you admire. They're the ones who disciple you. They're the ones who help you understand God's word. They're the ones who bring you towards God. The priesthood does that. The people get that the Sadducees are corrupted and misguided, but not the Pharisees. They're the teachers. They're the pastors. And when Jesus comes at them, and starts questioning their authority and teaching, most people are going to be just like, what? What? This is my favorite pastor. This is my favorite youth leader. This is the missionary that I've been supporting, so to speak. Those kind of an ideas. These are the tapes and the audios that I've bought and listened to. They're the ones who help me understand the word. Why is he doing this? But at the same time, he's amazing. And he's making me think in ways I've never thought. And he's, wow. Pharisees talked about love and compassion, but now they think about it, they really haven't done that. And Jesus is the one who's actually doing that. And he's caring about us, and he's got power and miracles, and, and they're confused. But it also, the fact that they're going to turn on him so quickly at the crucifixion shows you that they still don't know where they really belong in their thinking. Because when it really comes push to shove, they go right back to the Pharisees, the ones that they know better. And the ones who say, see, he's not defeating Rome like we taught you all these years. Their understanding of the Messiah is this conquering Messiah that the Pharisees have taught them. And so when Jesus goes at this, they're confused. But at the same time, he begins to reveal them for who they really are. Because the real desire of their heart is power, control. And by creating this two-tier system of the 1% and the 99%, that gives them a lot of power. By forcing you to be our disciples and keeping you dependent upon our teaching, that gives you a lot of power. And then, when he comes to threaten their power by redistributing it to everybody, and not in a communistic sense, but in a, everyone is a equal person belonging to God, they feel threatened. And that's when the claws and the fangs come out. And that's when they reveal themselves for who they really are. And this is why Jesus says, you just love power. And you are going to be judged by God. So the first section in this final division is the conflict with Jerusalem leadership. Chapter 20, verse 1 through chapter 21, verse 4. In this section, Luke has two major focuses. First is to certify Jesus' authority comes from Yahweh. Therefore, he is able to faithfully interpret the will of Yahweh. The fact that Yahweh appointed Jesus... Therefore, he is the correct authority and the correct interpretation is Luke's first and primary focus. Second is to show the public that the Jerusalem leaders did not enjoy the divine sanction of Yahweh, evidenced by their using the temple to give themselves power and privilege over people. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has been involved in a war of interpretation. And now after Jesus has upset the normal religious atmosphere of the temple, the religious leaders begin to question Jesus on his authority for doing so. Jesus engages in self-interpretation, which validates his authority. Jesus answers the questions, defeats their intentions, and then he responds by stumping them with his own questions and denounces them for not aligning their lives to the purpose of Yahweh. So they're going to come at him with questions. 
cool. If you're the Messiah and you know how to interpret Scripture, here's one for you. Here's one for you. And he's going to own them every time. And then he's going to say, and if you think you understand Scripture, here's one for you. And they're going to be like, ah. And he's like, if you don't know the answer, then I'm not going to tell you. And he walks away. And that's basically what we're entering to. But he's not petty because he will answer the question when he's put on trial. He'll just let them simmer on their stupidity for a while. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the gospel, the chief priests and the experts in the law with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? There you go. The temple courts where all political and religious power is. I mean, this is literally a temple state. Their government, their political power, their religious power is literally the temple. It's, one of the, it's a very unique government that has not really been seen around, throughout history in any other country. And so he's, he's in their home court. This is Congress. This is right in the House and the Senate. And, and, and they begin to question him. What, what authority do you say you have? Or who... Is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Jesus loves to do this. Remember, when he throws a question back at them, it's because he's saying, either one, your question is not asking the right thing, and I'm going to realign your question asking, or two, you're coming off a little haughty and arrogant and prideful, and I'm going to shut you down on that one too. John's baptism was it from heaven or from the people? Did John's baptism come from the authority of God? Now remember, heaven is a circumlocution. They, they did not believe that they could say the name of God or, or talk about God. And so um, it's, it's, it's interesting that Luke doesn't do this here, but Luke often says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Yahweh, because he's a Gentile and he doesn't care about that. But in Matthew's gospel, he often says the kingdom of heaven. Or the, the hand of God, rather than, or the hand of heaven, rather than the hand of God. Because there, there's a circumlocution where we're going to avoid the word by finding another word to replace it. And so that's what this idea from heaven means. Was John lifted up by God? And was he approved by God in doing the work of God, speaking the will of God? Or was John a product of the pop culture? And merely just someone who rose up in the culture and the people spurred him on and he did thing and he was just a bandwagon people pleaser saying what they wanted to say and gain fans in that way. So they discussed it. Now right there that means either one, they don't know the answer, which means they're really not in tune with God nor the culture of the people to be able to speak authoritatively on this. Or they do believe that they know the answer but they're afraid what to say publicly, and so they had to do a spin media on this. And that's what it is. If we say from heaven or from God, he will say, why did you not believe him? Because they're on the record for questioning John and doubting him. But if we say from people, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. This is important. Because what they really want is the people's approval. They've just done the polls. And they're like, if we say this in the polls, the, the polls say that we'll lose our ratings in this area. But if we say this, we'll lose our ratings too. So what in the heck will we do? We need the people to like us because if the people doesn't, don't like us, we won't have power. 
So they replied that they did not know where it came from. Then Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you whose authority I do these things. If you can't give the people a straightforward answer, and if you're unwilling to do double talk and ride the fence, then I'm not going to speak straight to you. And it's not that Jesus is being petty and saying, well, if you don't give me an answer, I'm not giving you an answer. He's just not being sucked into their house of cards, their house of thrones. And he says, I'm not going to play your dirty politic games. I'm not going to respond with my own nasty vote for me commercial just because you're doing that. Okay? If you can't give an answer in front of these people, then I'm not going to give you answers. And, and God makes this very clear. You will reap what you sow. I will give you over into the things. I will do to you what you do to other people. And so this is their judgment. So this is how this battle of the wits begins. So then he leads up with a parable. Verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to, a tenant farmers, to tenant farmers, and went on a journey for a long time. So a tenant farmer is someone who pays someone to work their land for a while. He keeps the land from being um, going to waste. If, I mean, if you have land and you have farming land and you just go away for a while, that land will become unused and weeds will grow and it'll be, or squatters can come in and take things and do things. So a tenant farmer comes in and says, I will pay you X percentage of my produce that I get from this land and you allow me to land. So this is good for the, the owner because his land is now being occupied. It keeps it from people abusing it, secretly planting marijuana seeds, that kind of stuff. It also allows the soil to be maintained. It also allows him to give a certain percentage even though he's gone for a while. When the harvest time came, he sent a slave to the tenants so that they would give him his portion of the crop, their rent. However, the tenants beat the slave and sent him away empty-handed. So they said, forget you. You haven't been here. You haven't been working it. This is our land, and we're going to beat the crap out of your servant and take all the profits. Never mind the fact that without his investment, they would never have been able to buy the land to begin with, and a lot of nutrients that are in the land that they're reaping from are there because of this farmer sowing that land year after year after year and taking care of it. And so all they can think is like, well, you haven't been here, and you're a master. This is our land. We've done all the hard work. But he has too. He has too. He sent another slave, and they beat this one too, and treated him outrageously, and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent a third, and they even wounded this one and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my one dear son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to one another, This is the heir. Let's kill him. To, and, um, let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then will the owner of the vineyard do, then what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. And when the people heard this, they said, may this never happen. But Jesus looked straight at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written. So Jesus tells this parable. Now it's obvious who all these people are. The people working the land are the Pharisees. Specific, well, generally speaking, the entire Jewish nation. But specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
the two political powers. Now remember from the intertestamental history that we went through, this is the equivalent of like the House and the Senate or the Democrats and the Republicans and our Congress. Not that there's an exact comparison, but that idea of two branches of government balanced out on each other. These are the people specifically. And the son that he's sending is Jesus. And he is also revealing to them that all they care about is power. They're willing to kill the things of God in order to have power. Which means that Jesus is saying that in your hearts, you Pharisees, in your hearts, even some of you Jewish people, in your hearts, you Sadducees, you want power more than you're willing to give it to God. This isn't about serving God. This isn't about obedience. This isn't about the Mosaic Law. This is about your power. And you're willing to kill the things of God in order to maintain their power. Now, who were the previous slaves that were sent? It's the prophets. And so year after year after year throughout history, God has sent prophets and they've killed them. And he says, just like the people before you, and he's already made this point, you've killed the prophets, you're also going to kill God's son. This is who you really are. You're no different than those people in the book of Kings. So then he looks right at them when they were like, oh, this could never happen. Like, we would never do this to God's people. And that's when Jesus, like, becomes dead serious. I would hate to see that look. Like, when he, I mean, he's fed up at this point. And they're about ready to kill him. And not because we're going to fulfill the will of God, but because we hate you. And he looks straight at them. And with this, like, best fatherly, angry, stern, calm, scary voice, rebukes them and says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and the one whom falls will be crushed. Then the experts in the law and the chief priests wanted to arrest him that very hour because they realized that he told this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This parable is lifted straight from Isaiah 5. But it's not plagiarism because Isaiah 5 is Jesus. He is the Word. But he does something that's different. In this parable, it's actually the owner of the land is Israel, the Jews. And the people who kill them is the slaves and stuff are the Gentiles. And it's the Jews were the builder's stone. And they were the builder stones that the Gentiles are going to trip over and they're going to crush themselves on. So even though the Gentiles are coming into Israel to kill and destroy Israel and take them into exile at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they're the ones beating the slaves and killing the slaves and killing the son, and the son is Israel. Then Israel becomes the builder's stone, the cornerstone that they, the Gentiles trip over and end up dying on because their evil actions in doing this becomes the judgment against them and God. So when God brings them out of exile, he judges Assyria and Babylon for what they did to his people. But Jesus now switches this and says, no, 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 no. You're worse than the Gentiles. And now you're the one killing God and God's people and God's son. And now I am the builder's stone. Now Christ has flipped it all on his head. He says, now you are the killers of the people of God. You've become the new Gentiles in your evil and your corruption. And I, God's son, are the cornerstone that you're going to trip over and die in judgment. Now this cornerstone is a block. It's the cornerstone of a building. 
the most important thing that you get right is the foundation. If that foundation is off by even just a sixteenth of an inch, that just amplifies itself as you move up through the framing and the roof and everything. That cornerstone, you don't necessarily lay cornerstones exactly in this sense of modern day house building, but in the ancient world you would lay a cornerstone and that had to be perfectly level and plumb and, and square and everything, and then everything gets laid off of that. It's the most important piece. But what you need to understand something is they're in the temple. And most likely, Jesus is pointing at the cornerstone of the temple. And the cornerstone of the temple is at least eight foot tall. And it's wider than this room. It's the length of like four or five cars. And it's incredibly wide. And it weighs like 10,000, like 10 tons or more. I mean, I, I forget what the numbers are on it. But when I was in Israel, when the Romans came, they didn't come when I was in Israel, but when the Romans came, <laughs> In 70 AD, they push all these stones off the side. Like, that's commitment to destruction, okay? And they slam, they dropped like 10 stories, and they slammed into the pavement, and they just destroyed the marble in the streets. And they're still there to this day because it's not worth it to anybody to try to move them. They're so huge. And you can literally stand at the corner of the Temple Mount, and it's like you put your hands up, and you can't reach the top of the cornerstone. It's huge. And even when we were jumping up. And Jesus is saying, that's what you're tripping over. Which means, that's impossible. It's impossible to miss a stone like that and trip over it. Like, that, you can't even trip over it. You just smack into it. And, and what Jesus is saying is, this is how blind you are to the things of God. It's not just he's making an analogy that you tripped over me and it's going to be your destruction because you've rejected that stone and said that stone doesn't exist and you've blinded yourself to it. Now you're tripping over it and now you're dying from tripping over the stone. That's your judgment. But he's saying you have to be so willfully blind to miss this stone. And the same way that you have to be so willfully blind to the fact that I'm tying all these prophecies into myself. Remember he said, if you knew the Father, you would know me. Like, God spent hundreds of years giving you photographs of what I would look like. Pieces of the puzzle. The prophets practically put all the pieces together for you. And, and now here they are, perfectly put together in a perfectly synced picture that no one could ever do. And you don't recognize it. You, you have the picture on the box of the puzzle. And now the puzzle's put together before you. I am hit. And you look at both of the pictures and you're like, nope, they don't look the same. How can you miss that? And that's why you're going to be judged. That's why you're going to become, not just because you're bad people who do bad things sometimes. We all do. Well, not Jesus. Not just because you've rejected things of God. Not just because you've been blind to things. But because it's literally standing right in front of you. You're looking back and forth and you're rejecting it completely because you'd rather have power than be in God's kingdom. That's how evil you are. And this is what Jesus is saying. You are the Gentiles. And he says this earlier. What did the owner of the vineyard do? He said May this, that they would be destroyed completely and he would give it to a, another tenant. This is 70 AD. The Romans come in and they completely destroy the temple and level the temple and push every stone off. And then in 135 A.D., the Romans have had it up to here with the Israelites, and they drive them all out of the land, all the ones they don't kill. 
and they make the land completely vacant, and then the Gentiles move in and start taking over. And the book of Acts begins to set this up as they continue to reject Jesus in the first seven or eight chapters of Acts. And it doesn't become very clear that God is moving to the Gentiles in addition to the Jews until around chapter 10. But by the time you get to chapter 15, it's very clear that he's moving away from Israel now. And he's moving to the Gentiles only. And this is what Christ is saying. This is what's coming. And you're going to lose all your power. The very thing that you have held on to, and you're willing to kill the things of God to hold on to this, God is going to strip it out of your clenched fist. And you're going to have nothing. You're going to have nothing. And at that point, everything that Jesus said leading up to this, the Sadducees and the Pharisees realized this is most certainly about them. At this point, they're saying, you're dead. And the irony here is that they're doing exactly what he said was going to happen. The irony here is not just that. The irony is that they think they're going to secure everything by killing him and fulfilling the parable. And that they're going to establish their power, not even realizing that God is using them to fulfill his plan, his plan of redemption. They're going to become tools in God's hand, even in their evilness. This is another one of those things I tell you. Just because God is using you, do not assume that you're in God's will and you're being obedient. God uses everything in creation. It all belongs to him. But what stops them? Their fear of the people. Because what do they love more than anything? Fame. Worship. Sycophants. And they know that that's where their power comes. The government can only do so much to the people before the people then say, I've had enough and turn against them and the government loses power. And so they know what they want to do. And they know they have the power to do it. And they know they can manipulate the people in doing it, but they can't just straight out come and do it because if they do it, then they lose the following of the people and the people uprise and turn against them and they lose their power. So rather than coming out and straight out doing it, you just manipulate the people into doing it for you. And that's what they do. This becomes the plan. If we fear the people because they like him and we'll lose our power if we turn against them, then we'll just get the people to hate him and turn against them for us. And this is their plan. 